0: as our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, introduces our study titled, Countering the Spirit of Despair. He shares about a trip to Europe his dad took with Billy Graham and a man named Chuck Templeton at the end of World War II. You've heard of Billy Graham, but who is Chuck Templeton? Let's join Dave and find out.
1: Right after the war, my dad and Billy and a guy named Chuck Templeton and several other evangelists in the wake and the aftermath of all that World War II had done, especially in England with the bombed-over buildings and bombed-out buildings, and people were really in the fits of despair. Uh, the Luftwaffe had come and just leveled large sections of London. And my dad and Billy Graham and Chuck Templeton and these other evangelists went over to have meetings. I remember the little kid, my dad, telling these stories, and it's been exciting for me to read Billy Graham's autobiography because I kind of get it from his perspective, and you know how it is. How many of you kids have ever found that your parents assume that you are living before you were? Anybody ever had that happen? And they tell you piecemeal all these different people you should know and all these different events that you should know. And so it's been really great for me to be able to sit down with Billy's autobiography because I get it in sequential, you know, flowing narrative, and it kind of comes together. But I remember as a little boy, and my dad telling me about this, 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 these. Campaigns that they had in Britain, campaigns they had in Europe, and he talked to me about traveling with Billy, and he also talked to me about a guy named Chuck Templeton. Amazingly enough, my dad would often say, remember as a little kid, my dad saying that Chuck Templeton was the most gifted of the three. The Lord had powerfully used all three of them. My dad had been used powerfully to bring people to Christ and and the eastern seaboard, and and the Lord was beginning to use uh, Billy, who was about 10 years younger than my dad, But the most powerful preacher of them all was a man named Chuck Templeton. He could present the gospel, could talk about what Jesus did in the cross of Calvary in an incredible, powerful way, and people responded. In fact, after they came back from Europe, uh, Billy did a crusade in Los Angeles, California. Before that crusade, Chuck Templeton was out with Billy, and they were doing some meetings in churches. But Chuck began to talk to Billy about the fact that Billy needed to update his message Chuck began to go to a school called Princeton Seminary, and in the late 40s, Princeton Seminary was becoming very strong in liberalism and and the belief that the Bible's really not the Word of God, that modern evolution has debunked the first chapters of Genesis, that we really need to get a lot more progressive. And Chuck would spend time talking with Billy about the need to get away from that old-fashioned gospel and that he really needed to get with it. He needed to talk about the the goodness that was in the human spirit. He needed to put his faith in mankind's ability to think things through and to use science. To be able to get the answers, and after all, everybody knows that the mustard seed, for example, isn't the smallest seed in all the universe. So Jesus must have been a little bit wrong about saying it was the smallest seed, and he forgot to tell Billy that you know, in literature or in any kind of communication, you can be saying this is the smallest seed and mean the smallest in Palestine or the smallest seed that's cultivated. He forgot to tell him that and said he made it a statement like absolute science absolute fact that the mustard seed is the smallest seed in all the universe, which Jesus never intended to say, but Chuck never communicated that. He just started putting these little doubts in Billy's mind, because he himself was beginning to move away from a commitment to scripture. Billy shared, before he went went into the Los Angeles Crusade, uh, there was very little media support. Uh, A lot of people were saying that he was uh, You know, like every other Elmer Gantry kind of evangelist that had stolen money, he became very discouraged. And he would walk out at Forest Home, which is a large Bible conference out there, and Billy would walk those mountains and walk the the beautiful conference ground. And he would pray, Lord, and do I really believe the Bible is the word of God? What about some of these things that science is bringing up? And Billy talked in his autobiography about the crisis of faith that he had. Here he was on the verge of the Los Angeles crusade. He was getting ready to speak, and it looked like he was scared to death about the crusade. It looked like very few people were going to come. It looked like it might be a disaster. And he, one of his very best friends, a guy that was even more eloquent than he was, a man that had a brilliant mind that was already in graduate school at Princeton Seminary, was telling him, the Bible's really not the word of God. Jesus Christ really isn't the ultimate answer in this post-World War II generation. And Billy shared in his autobiography how out there in the woods, he began to think through, what do I believe? And he began to go back over passages like 2 Timothy three sixteen, that says all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore, it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for encouragement, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that the woman of God might be completely equipped for all that they need for life and godliness. He began to read verses like that. He read verses from 1 Peter that says that that Scripture has not come to us by some private interpretation, but holy prophets, holy men of God, were moved along, just like a sailboat, being blown along by the power of the Holy Spirit They generated the Word of God. He began to read the Gospels and think through what Jesus Christ said about the Word of God. And Jesus said that that not one jot or tittle would pass away from the law of God until all be fulfilled. Jesus never debated with the Pharisees, the the Jewish people that, that believed in the inspiration of Scripture. We can read Josephus and we can read other writings from the first century. And we know that Judaism believed that Genesis through their second Chronicles, which is the way the Hebrew Bible goes. Same books that you have, only they've got it arranged differently. But we know for sure that they believed that the Old Testament was inspired by God. As we study the Gospels, we find out that our Savior in the historical documents believed in that Old Testament scripture, just the way the first century Jews did. And Billy was faced with a crisis. Will I believe what modern science is telling me? Will I believe what these avant-garde PhDs at Princeton will tell me? Will I take when I have a question, like maybe the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed, when I have a question and it looks like there's not an answer, will I jettison my commitment to the Scripture and begin to cling just to this life's answers? Or will I believe that ultimately, because Jesus told the truth and because I can depend upon him, I'll rest in what Jesus told me about reality? And there at Forest home, Billy got down on his knees and made a commitment one night that he was going to believe in the reliability of Jesus Christ. Chuck Templeton walked away from Forest home on a pathway that was walking away from Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about those two men. Because it's very possible that those two men could represent you. As I speak to an audience like this, it's very possible that as life began to develop, That you're going to be faced with that crisis in your life where you're going to have to decide whether you're going to believe that this is the word of God. Whether you're going to believe that there is a personal God that created the universe. Whether you're going to believe that this personal God sent his son into the world. That you're going to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're going to believe that he rose again and you're going to believe that he alone can give you the hope, the confidence of eternal life. You have to make a decision whether you're going to hang on to that and believe it and build your life upon it. And what I'd like to begin to really challenge you to do today is I want you to think about the outcome of those choices. Because often when, like I began sharing with you last week, and as we started talking about countering the spirit of Antichrist... As I began to talk to about going out to the university and how timely it was that the Spirit led us to talk like we did because some of our kids have already left. Dave and Deb Lowry are down in Georgetown and as, as Dan enrolled in Southwestern. And so as we talk about those things, some of the young people are going to be out there in that secular world and they're going to be facing the temptations and the challenges of who will you trust, who will you believe, where will you put your ultimate confidence. But the truth of the matter is that we all face it almost every single day. I want you to realize that we begin today, turn to 1 John chapter 4. Because as we talk about Antichrist, as we close the book of Revelation, remember what we're doing is kind of bringing together some of the heartbeats of what the book of Daniel told us that we needed to be warned about. We're talking about countering the spirit of Antichrist. And one of the things we began talking about that the essential spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of unbelief, a spirit of of anti-God, atheism. There is no God, therefore I'm God. It's easy to feel that, you know, there's this ultimate, terrible, diabolical, devilish man that's coming out there in the unknown future. Maybe very soon, but we can get all enamored with trying to identify the person of Antichrist, and we can forget that already his atmosphere, already his spirit is at work. 1 John chapter 4, the beloved apostle John talks to us about this spirit that's right here in this room. That will be right in our school that is right in our business marketplace that's going to be at the university. This spirit is already at work. Look what it says in First John chapter four verse one. "Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God." It's very important for you as a believer not to believe everything that you hear about the supernatural or everything that you hear uh, in a classroom or everything that you read in a book, everything you see in a movie, everything that you're exposed to in the media. It's very important also for you right here today. I want you to realize that I'm not asking you to, to put aside your critical facilities, your critical thinking. I'm not asking you to buy everything that I say. I'm not asking you to submit to my authority. In fact, I'm thrilled to death if you sit there testing the spirits. You see, I want you to test what I say with your own personal reading in the Word of God and what the Spirit of God leads you to do. Don't ever let someone get into your mind and seize the control of your mind and try to get you to jettison all your thinking processes. The real Jesus will cause you to test the spirits. And you'll compare it with what you've learned in the past from this book and and what faithful people have taught you. And so don't ever just buy what a speaker is saying. Don't ever just mindlessly listen and just take it all in without thinking it through from a biblical perspective. That's what it's saying here. You might be exposed to someone that's able to do incredibly powerful things spiritually. In fact, when we study the book of Revelation together, we'll find out that the the Antichrist and his false prophet are going to be able to do incredibly powerful miracles. They'll call fire down from heaven. They're going to be able to, to just really wow people. They're going to build a great big statue, and then almost it's going to appear that they give it life. The statue will begin to talk and will begin to give out prophecies. Incredibly powerful, supernatural things are going to happen. Just because someone's able to do supernatural things doesn't mean that they're from the true Holy Spirit of God. And that's what, P, what John wants us to realize. We need to test the Spirit to see whether or not they are from God. Why? Because there's many false prophets who have gone out into the world. Even in the first century, the church was already facing false teaching, false prophecies. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges, and that word acknowledges is a very strong word, not just saying it with their mouth, But someone that really submits to it with their life. It's very similar to the word, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge, intimately know him. It's not just giving a credence to it with your mouth. Sometimes people say things with their mouth that they don't really follow through with their life. So this word here is a strong word. This is how every spirit that acknowledges is intimately committed to the fact that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, that He's the Savior. That he is the Messiah that was promised, and this Messiah that was promised actually came into the world in the first century, and he came from God the Father to reveal ultimate truth to us. It says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. That's what I want you to see. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And even now, he's already at work in the world. The spirit is already at work in the world. You see, as we talk about countering the spirit of Antichrist, I want you not to be so enamored trying to figure out who 666 is that you're not aware of what the spirit of Antichrist is doing right now and what's going to happen in the college classroom, what's going to happen in the high school classroom, what can happen in an elementary school classroom, what can happen in your job, what can happen in your family. A spirit of Antichrist that begins to move away from a commitment that Jesus Christ has come from God the Father. Into this world, he became a man just like we are, have humanity. He became fully man, and he revealed the truth to us. As we turn back to Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, we read this in Psalm 14, 1, about how God evaluates someone that has the spirit of Antichrist and begins to just turn away from what is true. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. Famous, in fact, twice in the Psalms, we have these verses repeated. Psalm 53, 1 through 6 is exactly parallel to Psalm 14, 1 through 7. So the Lord very much wanted us to hear that. He repeated these words twice in his inspired book. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt in their deeds. They are vile. There is no one who does good. The fool is sitting in his heart. Now, I want you to realize that when you read a fool in a context like this, it's not someone that's mentally retarded. The scripture has great tenderness and great uh, compassion for someone that's mentally retarded. And in fact, in the, in the heart of God, there's a special place for someone that doesn't have all their facilities, and, and God tenderly takes care of them and wants to meet their need. There's no mocking of someone like that in the word of God. When it talks about a fool, it's not talking about someone that's a little bit slow or someone that's a little bit mentally retarded. In fact, it's just the opposite. As you study the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find out that often this fool is very keen intellectually. Often they're right at the head of the class. Often they're making straight A's. Often they're very, very brilliant intellectually. What it's talking about is that they're foolish in the sense that they've made a choice in life that's going to walk away from the source of life and they're going to begin to plunge towards the sources of death you see the idea of the bible is that you start out in genesis chapter one that god breathes into our nostrils the breath of life and we become a living being so god is the source of life if you turn away from god where are you headed if you turn away from Christ to breathe life into us, then you're walking into the place of death. It's just the way it is. And anyone that walks into a place of danger, willingly walked into a place of death for no strong reason at all, they turn away from someone that's full of love, that's full of joy, that's full of peace, and they turn into, fo- into deadly destruction. That's foolish. That's the idea. It tells us something very, very important in this verse. It says... The person, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But then it says they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. I would expect the psalmist to say, they say the fool said in his heart, there is no God, because the answers that God has given us in his word aren't strong enough to substantiate a true faith position with God. I would expect him to say maybe the fool said that there is no God, Because atheism is a better answer to the problem of of reality and the fact that we're here and and that evolution that can teach us that we're just here by probability, that's a much better answer. But that's not what he says. Or I would expect him to say something along the lines of, the fool is in his heart, there is no God, because they're not listening to the arguments that God has made for his existence. It doesn't say any of that. It jumps right away, the fool is in his heart, there is no God, it says they are corrupt. And one of the things I want you to realize as you talk about all these things that we talk about, you know, trying to put together our faith and giving some strong reasons for our faith, is that we need to understand that the deep-seated problem in humanity is not the fact that God hasn't revealed himself strong enough, that God hasn't given us a strong enough reason to believe, it's because we willingly choose to do the wrong thing. Very important to understand that. But I want you to know that I can give you all the reasons for why I believe that Jesus is the answer. I can tell you why I've decided to serve Him. But you can still sit there and strongly believe the arguments of an atheistic professor. Strongly believe the arguments of an atheistic friend. Strongly get captivated in that world. But if you'll really be honest, as you start to get captured in that world, one of the bottom line things that you'll have to admit is that you do that so you can do what you want to do. Bertrand Russell was a great atheist in Russia, an agnostic. He might have called himself an agnostic. I just don't know. I just don't know. To make the statement that I'm an agnostic, I don't know, is an oxymoron. It's a statement that doesn't really make any sense, because you're saying, I don't know that I don't know. So you do say that I know that I don't know, which doesn't make any sense. You see, every one of us has to make a faith commitment to something. You can't stay in middle ground just the way life is. And one of the things I want you to really think about today, I want you to know that as I stand before you, I cannot prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, absolutely prove in living color existence that Jesus is the answer. You say, Dave, you can't? No. If I could, there wouldn't be faith anymore. What it would mean is that I've already been transcended to heaven. My dad right now knows for sure that Jesus is the answer. My dad's looking at the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's filled with infinite joy, infinite love. There's no faith at all about it. It has become sight. And he's probably saying, Dave, hang in there. Believe. It's true. But I want you to know, my dad often said, I'm just as sure of heaven as if I've already been there for a thousand years, and that's the way my dad's personality was. But I'm not. And the reason I'm not is because I haven't been there yet. But I want every one of you to realize that everybody on planet Earth is in exactly the same position. you got to decide what you're going to believe in, what you're going to depend upon. And what I want you to know is that there are very strong reasons for depending upon the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. When God is saying the fool is in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. They've all done their own way. What he's saying is that the problem is not really with the intellectual arguments. The problem is with the moral commitment. We want to do what we want to do. In recognizing that, I want to go on today because most of you have already received Christ... And I want to show you that your position of deciding Christ is really a wise decision, contrary to the atheist that decides, I'm going to live my life as if there isn't God, I'm going to be God in myself. You have decided, I'm going to believe in Jesus. You've sided with Billy Graham, you've gotten down on your knees, a whole lot of you, if if you haven't, I want to motivate you to do that, and you've said, I'm going to believe in Jesus. And I want to share with you where that's going to lead. And where it's going to lead is going to lead to love, first of all. What I want you to understand is that if you're a father of Jesus, if you get down on your knees with Billy and say, I'm going to believe that Jesus told the truth, then you're going to answer the question, where is the love? You're going to answer the question, the love is in the person of Jesus. Very important to understand that. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. Where is the love? One of the most important questions you need to ask is, where in the world can I find love? From an atheistic, secular position, you're never going to be able to determine where love comes from. None of you guys, some of you that are really into physics and really into chemistry and stuff, when you fall in love, like it's been happening to my older boys in the last couple of years, and, and you look across the room and suddenly you know, that woman really captures your eyes, I guarantee you that there's not going to be one of you guys. Like when I asked Mira to marry me, and I took her across that train trestle and took her out into the boggy dingoes of Letchworth State Park. As a chemistry major, I didn't say By probabilities and chance of DNA now working, the amino amino acid sequences in my body have now determined because of my genetic heritage that goes way back down through the animal kingdom, through kind of some primitive apes and some tree shoes. But because of that determination and also because of environment that I had no control over, we are going to get connected. That really connects with a woman, doesn't it? Now, I went to school with some really intellectual guys. I really did. Carl Lynch has a dual PhD. He was my competitor all the way through. I beat him on one PChem, physical chemistry test, and he was ready to strangle me. And man, I was ready to soar into heaven right then. For once, I beat him. He went on to Rochester Medical School, uh, did a degree, a specialty in neurophysiology, uh, got his PhD in that, and also with an MD. A brilliant guy. But Carl fell in love while, you know, while we were at school. And Carl, this brilliant chemist and brilliant physicist and brilliant doctor, didn't go to his wife and give that kind of scientific gobbledygook. And I want you to think hard about that. It shows you that you just can't live as if you're just a pile of stuff. You see, that's why atheism, like when, the, when you're taught evolution and you're taught that you're just a pile of stuff, you see, somewhere down the line, you need to deal with a thing. How do we move from a pile of just stuff Matter and energy. As a chemist, where do we move from amino acids, where do we suddenly end up with this thinking, feeling, deciding being? Why is it that everything that's important to me, that's really important, is not stuff, as much as I think that it is, but the words that are really important to me are words that are invisible words, like love, truth, faithfulness, dependability, peace, joy. All of those things are things that I can't go to Walmart and buy. You see? They're all immaterial things. They're all invisible things. And yet they're the things that, as you live in the world, whether you like it or not, no matter what you believe, that's what this world is about. That's what wars are fought over. That's what people get uptight about. And when you fall in love, you affirm very strongly that you're a person. That you, because you're a person, that something very powerful has happened inside of you that makes, makes you want to join with another person, and you don't want to just use them for yourself. You want to be able to give of yourself to them to build them up and to help them. There is all of that spirit inside of us. It's called love. What I want you to understand is if you're an atheist, if you're a secularist, if you totally accept atheistic evolution, if you live your life the way Antichrist wants you to live it, then you've walked away from love. I want you to understand that very strongly. You cannot philosophically move from a pile of material stuff to all of this meaning structure about love. That's what Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, really understood. You see, he understood that science And modern thinking was saying, there is no God, there is no immaterial world, there is no soul, what the Greeks would call a soul, so therefore you are just an it. When you die, that's just the end. And what Nietzsche had the courage to say is, well, that means that there is no love. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to see the great contrast. So when you're sitting in that classroom or when you're tempted to walk away from the commitment of this book, I want you to feel that. I want you to know the emptiness that you're walking into. Now I want you to see the contrast. Look what Jesus himself says to his apostle John in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Look at it in verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. What powerful words. That's what I just told you. You see, if you're an atheist, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. So if love comes from God and I walk away from love, then what am I walking away from God? I already answered my question. I'm walking away from love because love comes from God. I want you to know that all your unbelieving friends, everybody you work with, everybody on planet Earth, whether they're Chinese, Japanese, Hindus, Buddhists, Confucianists, whatever they might be, they can be animists, Shirley MacLean, reincarnationists, they can be whatever they want, every little ounce of legitimate love that they have for someone else, whether it's for a child or whether it's for a a man or a woman, what any legitimate ounce of love that they have, fathers and kids, mothers and kids, every little ounce of love they get is from God. Satan has not one drop of love in him. You ever stop and think about that? Every single bit of love in this reality, this universe, is from God. That's what John is saying. You must love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So we can't say, I believe in Jesus. I'm looking forward to being with him in heaven, but I just can't stand the family of believers he's called me to live in. Don't talk like that. Because if you really meet Jesus as the author of love, then he generates on the horizontal level this response to love, which makes us really want to get together today and really need each other as brothers and sisters. That's what John is saying. He's saying that you've got to identify, in the flow of 1 John, he's talking about the importance of connecting with the body of Christ. And he's saying that if you connect and express love in this body of Christ, then you can be sure that you've met the author of love. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Now, here's the source and the definition of love. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. You see, it wasn't that we were responding to God, that we were reaching forth for him. It was him reaching us. This is love. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. That's what I was telling you earlier. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we ask the question as a believer today, you say, Dave, where do you believe love comes from? Love comes from God. Define love. Love is the self-sacrifice of God the Father through God the Son that causes him to give his life as an atoning sacrifice to cover our sins so that we can have removed the barrier that would hinder us from coming to God. It's all about God and his Son and the Spirit reaching down to people that are not reaching towards them and providing the way for all all the barrier to be removed. So even the atheist, God is still saying to an atheist today, God loves you, you can have the barriers removed, you can have your egotism removed, you can have your sin removed, because God's still reaching forth to you in love. That's an incredible thing. And I want you to see the difference. Where is the love? The atheist, if they're really pushed... Can't tell you how you move from a pile of stuff to how you end up with this thinking, feeling, deciding being that's so into love. Carl Sagan is now gone. I don't know where he went. He died. He got very sick and he died. And I, all of my life, since I was a little kid, I've been reading his book. I remember watching his big series on TV, Cosmos. I want to read the book because you can read a book quicker than you can watch a TV series. As I read the novel, Sagan spells out his beliefs in just stuff, in material things. He has a religious guy. He's really the smartest guy in the whole book. He goes to a big Ivy League school, probably Harvard or Yale, some school like that, and he, and he gets thrown out for cheating. He's working on his dissertation, and he gets thrown out of the school for cheating. Interesting that atheist secularists think it's wrong to cheat. And nobody ever seems to ask the question, well, if we're just stuff, if we're just things, then who cares whether we cheat or not? You see where all that, that, that comes from. The idea is like if, if we're just here by probabilities, what makes cheating such a bad thing? If it helps me to get ahead and if it helps me to move along with my career, the survival of the fittest. Doesn't that work? Well, they didn't buy that, so they threw him out. Okay. So he started making a career writing dissertations for other people. He ends up writing about three of them, which that's pretty smart. I mean, you know, man, I have three different PhDs. And all the way through the book, he debates with the scientific character that Sagan is raising, and that's looking for this answer, listening with radio telescopes to what's out there. And what Carl Sagan has the honesty to admit is he has this religious guy that's committed, you know, that he ultimately ends up building a, a career as an evangelist, kind of a, a big hip evangelist out in California, and he's painted like that. But Carl Sagan has the honesty, the honesty to have that religious ray to the scientists. How do you explain love? And Sagan admits in contact, I really can't explain human love and, the, and that closeness that human beings desire based just upon materialistic evolution. He has the courage to admit that. And that's going right back to what we have here. You as a believer, you as a believer can say, you. someone says, where does love come from? You say, God, the one that gave me my life, the one that created me in the beginning, the one that fashioned me in my mother's womb, Love comes from him because part of his intrinsic nature is not just blind probabilities, not just violence and force, but at the ultimate being in the universe, in his essential being, he is love. And you're going to experience that love forever and ever. You say, well, how has that ultimate, infinite God expressed himself and poured himself out? It said he died on the cross. He gave his son. I read an atheist just uh, Friday night An atheist said that if there really was a God, that he would certainly do more. And what could be more stupid for Christians to tell us that what he did was to have his son be murdered so that people could be forgiven? What could be more stupid than that? So the atheist was laughing at the very expression of what is the ultimate expression of what it means to be in love. For someone that loves someone else, even someone that's rejecting them, to do the thing that was needed to do to really deal with the problem that they had is the most ultimate expression of love. But the atheist was laughing at it, saying, what could be more dumb than God becoming a man and then offering himself on the cross? And it reminded me of what Paul said, to those who are perishing, the cross seems to be foolishness. The cross seems to be foolishness. But for those of you that are being saved, it's the power of God. Every one of you that have heard stories about someone that gives their life for the sake of another. Like when I was working construction, I remember there were a couple of guys that were, they were pouring concrete in these big forms where they had formed up in it, maybe 12, 15 feet and they, were, they had a chute and were dumping this stuff over and it was this great big vat almost of concrete this guy got trapped and fell in there and the stuff was coming in On and one guy reached in and in doing so, he got himself trapped but he was able to get the other guy out but he himself gave his life. Now the one that was saved didn't laugh at the one that in a split segment of time decided I'm going to risk my life to save my brother. When that happens on a battlefield, when it happens on construction, we never laugh at that but the atheist was saying it's just a bunch of foolishness. It shows you how we turn love into a critical attack to kind of bolster up our own position. What I want you to understand, first of all, I want you to be strong in countering the spirit of Antichrist. As you're talking with people, we need to confidently know, where is the love? Where is the love? The love is in God. If you turn away from God, you've turned away from love. And that love has concretely expressed itself in the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want the kids, and I want all of you to listen to secular songs and listen to the words. Time and time again, the secular music industry will ask the question, where is the love? Where is the love? And they'll try to turn sexual love into the God that controls all things, but there'll still be an emptiness underneath it. So, The very first thing I want you to realize is we counter kind of the spirit of, of antichrist, that we're on strong ground. Where is the love? We know it comes from God. And God has expressed that love according to 1 John chapter 4 in that he gave his son to die for us. The second thing I want you to ask yourself is where is the right and wrong? Where is the moral standard? Where can we know that this is the right thing to do and this is the wrong thing to do? I mentioned Carl Sagan earlier in Contact. That was another thing he admitted. He admitted what he called the moral problem. It was awfully hard to understand how we could move from evolution and probabilities and that you're just a glorified ape to all of this stress upon right and wrong. They asked Bertrand Russell one day how he decided what was right and wrong. He said, it's not any different than color. It's like red and white or blue and green. No difference at all. You just decide. That's the way he looked upon it. In another debate, in another debate that a believer was having against an atheist, he said that, you know, the Bible really doesn't make any difference. The moral standards of the Bible are just arbitrary. So the professor that was debating against this atheist said to him, well, let's suppose that you leave here tonight, you go out into the streets and you go into a bad part of the city, and suddenly coming out of this this room, there comes out about 30 kids, just like some of these guys here, several guys, big, strong guys. And this this believer said to the atheist, would it make any difference to you to know that they had just come out of a Bible study? And the professor had a laugh. He said, yeah, it would make a difference. It would make a big difference. He would be much safer. He would be much more protected. Why? Because the Bible really doesn't make a difference. There are moral sinners that are revealed here. It's very hard to understand how in the world there is such a thing called right." And wrong without God. Where is the right and wrong? We know there's right and wrong because Jesus, God's Son, has revealed that to us. We go back into the Old Testament. Where did God reveal to the children of Israel what was right and what was wrong on Mount Sinai? The Old Testament believes that on an actual mountain, at an actual place, on an actual tablet of stone, God the Father wrote in his own hands ten principles, ten words. They call it in Hebrew that lay out the foundation of what is right and what is wrong. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to bear false witness. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's, and that word adultery relates to It's wrong to commit all kinds of sexual immorality. It's wrong for us to, to covet what doesn't belong to us. And deep in our soul, whether we know about Sinai or not, across the world, deep in our soul, human beings know that this is right and this is wrong. We can fight against it, and secular anthropologists sometimes will try to teach you, well, there's all kinds of ins and outs of right and wrong, and people have all different viewpoints about that. You're going to find as you progress in your understanding, as you get to know people, you're going to find out when you travel in other parts of the world that there are intrinsic things buried in the human heart that people know this is right and this is wrong. And it's not just programmed from their parents. And that's what the scriptures reveal to us. It's awfully hard to know that there's a standard, this is right and this is wrong, without the revelation of God and his word. If I'm, a, a, if I'm an evolutionist, then I argue like this. The forces of evolution are moving powerfully. The dominant force within the, in that is what we call natural selection, and another popular way to put that is the survival of the fittest. We have now progressed in human history where these kind of Olympic athletes are the avant-garde area They're the avant-garde level of the evolutionary process. We can take these girls that look a certain way and they seem to be much more virile than some of these other girls. So what we need to do is to take these Olympic men and these Olympic women. We need to unite them together. In fact, it would even be good to, to, to breed them sequentially several times, especially if we have a really good stud. How does that go with you? See, from an evolutionary standpoint, that all makes sense. How can you argue against it? What would be wrong with that? That's the force that got us to where we are. You can also say that if someone's born with a genetic defect someone's born, you know, so that they have a problem, that they're missing a limb, or they're missing an ability to speak, then what we need to do is we need to eliminate them, because in the name of what is good for humanity, if we don't eliminate that gene, then it's going to be passed on and produce a weaker humanity, which means we're going to be less able to be able to cope with reality and what's going on in the natural universe. So the the good thing to do, the right thing to do, in order to keep the flow of humanity, is to exterminate these people that have infected. Genes that can lead to that we don't like certain breeds of people. There's people in our midst. There's people in our midst that are at the lowest level of human development. Those people in our society have, 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 by conniving and by, and by getting into places, especially where they control the money, have gotten control of our society and they're pulling our society down. And in order to to make the next gigantic leap that evolution needs to make, we need to get rid of these people. Especially we need to get rid of their children because if we eliminate the children, then they're gonna, we're gonna stop this inferior race from developing. You see, that all mixes. What I want you to understand is you sit there and and probably already you're starting to say, man, that's not right, and, and I don't believe that. But I want you to feel a little bit of that argument because those were the arguments that were used in Nazi Germany to justify the Holocaust. People didn't say, they didn't just get up and say, we're now going to murder six and a half million people. We're going to murder a million and a half little children. We're going to take little girls with beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes, and we're going to incinerate them. They didn't talk like that. They talked exactly the way that I'm talking previously. Previously. They took evolution and they argued it brilliantly and intellectually. There were even theologians that taught in German universities that accepted the theory of evolution and materialism and atheism, and they were the ones that gave the ethical stability and authority that Hitler needed to carry out the diabolical plan. What gives you the courage to stand against that? It's one human being that says, God said, thou shalt not murder. God said that every one of these individuals is made in the image of God. That this isn't like stamping on a bunch of ants. This isn't like killing an ape. This isn't like shooting a lion. This is taking someone that reflects the being and the person of the ultimate being in the universe. And he has told us we cannot innocently take the life of another. It is wrong and he will judge us for it. You see you see the difference there? Are you feeling some of that difference? But you know the incredible thing when I ask the question, where is the right and wrong? I know deep in my heart, it's intuitive in my heart, that I know it's wrong to innocently take a life, to murder someone, to violently and cruelly destroy someone else's life. I know that it's wrong. I know that it's wrong to lie. I know that it's wrong to steal. But you know what the problem is? I, I know that it's wrong to do that, but I can't live consistent with a moral standard that's within me. And so I ask the question, where is the moral standard? As I begin to say, I know the moral standard comes from God, and I do realize that it's bigger than just human sociology coming up with some rules and regulations that kind of help human beings get along. But then I find myself faced with a great problem. How in the world can I ever do the right? And that's where I want you to know the incredible strong ground that you hold as a born-again believer in the Scripture. If you were a Mormon, if I were teaching you as a Mormon teacher today, following Mormon doctrine, then what I would teach you at this point is that you can be good. You can be good in your families. You can be good in your business. You can pull yourself up. In fact, I would tell you stirring stories of of the incredible fortitude that Brigham Young had and bringing people from, from the east out to Salt Lake City and moving into this desert western territory and carving an existence that now is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. And I would tell you those stories that say, in the modern world, you can do it too. You can be Brigham Young. You can stand against the forces of nature. You can be strong. You can do what's right. i probably leave out the fact that he had several women and all that kind of a thing, but I would talk to you about his goodness, Okay? His intrinsic goodness through his own self effort What I want you to know is that Jesus Christ tells us something totally different. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the neatest thing about being in Christ when it comes to a commitment to righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, begins like this. We, therefore, are the Messiah, the Christ's ambassadors, and that's what we want to be as we go out, countering the spirit of Antichrist. We do it by being the ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, now this is the key verse, God made him who had no sin, the sinless, perfect one, Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Some other translations have to be a sin offering. What it means is that Jesus infused his personality with our sin. He took all of our sin and infused it himself. It's exactly... Like, let's suppose, like when we found out when Debbie Baxter had cancer, this is exactly like someone went into Debbie's body and they pulled out all the cancer cells. That's what they did. They went into her, her, her body and her bone marrow system and they pulled out all those cells, all those malignant cells. What Jesus did is he, he went into our bodies and he pulled out all the evil cells. He pulled out the malignancy. That we have received from being born as children of Adam and Eve. And then it's so they did something incredible. He infused us. Look at the next part. He infused us with his righteousness so that it says God made him a new sin to be a sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just like Debbie Baxter received from her from her friend, an infusion of healthy bone marrow that would produce the right kind of blood, Jesus Christ infused us with his righteousness. And I want every one of you to know that there's no other philosophy, there's no other religion on planet Earth that gives that kind of an infusion. Buddha will tell you that you need to join him, you need to leave your family if you're a husband, possibly, if you really want to follow the path of nirvana, a lot of people forget that Buddha left his family and his kids and crawled into himself. So there will be guys that will tell you, you need to join me in meditation and you need to follow my example. But they're not going to infuse you with their character that's, that's consistent with the ultimate living God. Mormonism will teach you all about how to be good and how to be moral and how to take care of those that are within your circle. But it's not going to infuse you with a divine gift of God's character. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 makes that incredible promise. And that's why I decided to join with Christ and to counter the spirit of Antichrist. Because Christ alone can give me the question, where is the love? It's in God the Father, revealed through his Son, impacting my life through the cross and the resurrection. Where is? Where is the right and wrong? It's found once again in the ultimate God. But it's revealed to us in the person of his son who has infused me with his righteousness. Third thing I want to talk to you about is where is the hope? Where is the hope? I tried to give you an atheistic funeral sermon. An atheist saying, we're just material stuff. This is just a bag of chemicals. Now it ceased to be vitalized, so that's it. And I share with you how that goes over at a funeral. In fact, all of my life, I've read page after page of atheistic material And I've read all kinds of stuff along that line, but I've never yet gone to a funeral where somebody got up and spoke and consistently followed out the philosophy of atheism. It's amazing at funerals how we suddenly grab for the immaterially. We suddenly grab for some infinite being. I've heard a lot of crazy gobbledygook about what might be out there, but I've never had someone say, like the spirit of Antichrist, material material thing is all there is. This person is just a bunch of stuff. They're gone, let's move on with our existence. Never seen a funeral like that. I've had people that will do a quick exit, you know, bury a person quick and just go right on with their life that believe like that, but they never really have services and commemorate human existence. Why do we yearn so much for what's unseen? Because it's buried in our soul. Where is the hope? Atheism gives no hope. Atheism leads to despair. As you're growing older, as you're growing older and you start to realize, man, this physical being's wearing out, and you go through all that trauma, the aging process, atheism sucks the life out of you. It begins to destroy you. Ernest Hemingway just lived from materialism. As he moved in, getting older and began to realize that he couldn't get near the thrill out of women that he got when he was younger. He couldn't get near the thrill out of shooting a lion that he got when he was younger. He couldn't get near the thrill of fishing that he got when he was younger. He just put a shotgun in his mouth and blew himself away. Why? Because all of his meaning was gone. Therefore, there was nothing left but despair. Now, most of us that are are in that kind of thinking don't follow the ultimate outcome of that. We just kind of take pills and kind of struggle along. But I want you to know the incredible strong position. Where is the hope? Jesus Christ gives me hope faced with the reality of the fragility of human existence, Jesus Christ gives me a hope. In the end, it will be okay. Turn to Colossians, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul talked about this hope. Colossians, chapter 1, verse 27. Paul's talking about his commission and the good news that he received. Look at Colossians, chapter 1, verse 27. It said, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. I want to read that again. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Paul's commission from God was to talk to people like us. Most of us are Gentiles. It was to talk to people like us. Gentiles. What did he talk to them about? The glorious riches of this mystery. Something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed in the New. And that is Christ, the Messiah, inside of you the hope of glory. How many of you know that Jesus Christ is living in your heart? Just think about it. How many of you know that Jesus Christ is living in your heart? You look back over your life, you remember a time when you invited him into your heart. Do you realize that the presence of Jesus inside of you, like even when you struggle and you want to get away, how many of you have ever felt that spirit of Christ when you're trying to go away from him, him pulling you back? Anybody ever experienced that? What Paul is saying is that you, by that witness, know the Spirit of God is witnessing with your spirit that the Spirit of God is within you, and therefore you have the hope of glory. And the word hope in the, in the Greek New Testament is not just like, I hope so. It's more like you have the confidence, you have the expectation of eternal glory because Christ is already inside of you. And boy, you know, the longer that I live, the more precious it is. I can't remember when I didn't know about the hope of Jesus. And the hope that Jesus brought. I was raised, I had the great privilege of being raised like a lot of our kids in homes that taught me that taught me about the hope of Christ from the time I was little. I'm sure I go through some times wondering, what would it be like not to have Christ in my life? And maybe it would have been better if I got saved when I was older because then I would know what it was like not to be saved. But the truth of the matter is, one of the greatest stories is that from the time I was just a little boy, I had this hope, this hope of glory because Jesus Christ lived inside of me. An atheist doesn't have that hope of glory. So rather than being intimidated by them, I want you to have a great prayer for them. I Want to close with this? Where is the wonder? You ever notice how little kids, it doesn't take a whole lot to cause them to really get entertained? Dale was was uh, the other day at her pool with Emmy, was take Emmy and kind of hold her and just swoosh her back and forth in her legs. And you know, it looks like she's gonna shake her like, it's like he was gonna shake her like a rag dog. Dolly, throw her back and forth, throw her back and forth, then throw her way up in the air into the water, and then boy, she goes splash, and she comes swimming right back. and says, "More daddy, more daddy, more daddy." Dale's totally exhausted. How many of you have ever seen kids do that? Have you ever watched their faces when they do that? Have you ever watched what a little baby does looking at a mobile spinning around? There's wonder in that. There's wonder in that. Now what starts to happen to you as you get older? How many of you kids have noticed that you'll say, "Come on, Dad!" Let's go and do, and what did your dad say, kids? No. Why didn't he want to do that? You know why? Because the wonder, the wonder starts to go. You know why the wonder starts to go? Because he's tired. He's already experienced it. It's not the first time anymore. You see, one of the things that starts to happen in this life is you live your life more and more and more. You realize all these things I did on planet Earth, I used to think they were filled with wonder, filled with fun. Filled with meaning, but now the wonder is going. Atheism, there's an empty, no-end exit at the end. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, except you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The neat thing about Jesus, you know what? If you grow old with Jesus, you won't lose the wonder. When we're in Christ, we're filled with that wonder of childhood that never, never runs out. That's the great hope. And that's what I want us to realize. I want you to experience that joy. If you're starting to lose the wonder of life, you can recapture it again in Jesus alone. I started out telling you about Billy Graham and telling you about Chuck Templeton. Well, you know how Billy Graham's life ended up. Billy Graham is now in his early 70s, and he has preached around the world. You all know the outcome of his decision. He's become an example. He's really, in a lot of ways, become the pastor of our nation, when the bomb went off in Oklahoma City, there's no other person that we would rather have do the memorial service in our culture than Billy Graham. And he gets up and he powerfully presents the resurrection hope of Jesus. So you know the way the Lord has used Billy Graham. What about Chuck Templeton, the guy that was more gifted than him? Chuck's family has dissolved. He went up to Kennedy with a Canadian. He totally went away from his faith, Princeton Seminary and the unbelief that was rooted in some of those systems just turned him totally away from God. He wrote a, a very skillful writer. He wrote a book that is a powerful, immoral attack against Jesus Christ. He portrayed Jesus as immoral. And most of you have never even heard of him. Now, in Canada, you probably wouldn't know him. But most of you as Americans, in fact, the truth of the matter is a lot of Canadians have never heard of Chuck Templeton. Two paths, two young men, two choices. One walk down a way where he says, I'm going to live for my mind. I'm not going to live for that stupid Sunday school stuff. I'm going to grab the most avant-garde stuff in, in, in science. And I'm going to use this incredible gift of communication, writing and speaking, in order to present just materialism and atheism. And you can look at Chuck's life and you look at Billy's life and there's a total difference in the outcome that they generated. All of you have heard of Madeline here. I talked about my dad debating her uh, in the big CBS radio program. Look at Madeline here. You know, we don't even know where Madeline is today. I sat down with Bill Murray, her son, several years ago. Bill is the little boy that Madeline used in the school to get all the prayer thrown out. As Bill sat in the car and we rode together, and later on when we ate together, Bill told me, about the abuse in his home. He talked to me about how he eventually came to know Christ when he got away from that influence. And now Bill travels around the country declaring the story of Jesus. You see, there's a total difference. What I would challenge you as young people to do and as adults to do and as children to do, I want you to honestly look at at the outcomes of life. Billy is a great example of a decision as a young man, I'm going to get down on my knees and believe, where is the love found in Jesus? Where is the right and wrong? It's found in Jesus. Where is the hope? It's found in Jesus. Where is the wonder? Where is the mystery? Where is the incredible, fulfilling joy that will last forever and ever? It's found in Jesus. He got down on his knees and he worshiped. And God calls him his son. On the other side, there's someone that faces those same challenges. And they decide, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But God always has the last word. What, I want, what I've tried to do in these last couple weeks together is I want you as a born-again believer to have great confidence, to have firm ground in knowing that you can counter the spirit of Antichrist, that you don't have to be sucked in by all this secularism. And I, I want you to know, honestly, I have gone through times in my life where I have really wondered about Jesus and really wondered about the word of God, and I it was being pulled in by these arguments. And that, that's kind of a besetting thing in my life. I'm a, I'm a perpetual doubter. I'm a perpetual cynic. What I've tried to do today is just share to you, not share with you honestly from my heart why I've decided to put my faith and trust in Jesus, why I've decided that He is dependable. And why Mary and I and our family are gonna run with Him right until the Lord called us home to be with Him. Because He is the love, He is the right and wrong, He is the hope and He is the wonder.
0: For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.